folks, welcome inside the Parisi Palace, high above 3773 East Broadway. This is a live edition of the Jake Feinberg Show. Coming to you on Power Talk, please go to our website, powertalk.live. Download our free app to your smartphone so you can stream all of our live local programming, including Solomon on Blast, the Jim Parisi Show, and yours truly, the Jake Feinberg Show. And we can't thank you enough for making us part of your day today, and it's always invigorating to uh, connect with cats uh, musicians who are able to play all styles of music and they understand the idea of serving the song no matter what it is whether it's jazz or blues or rock or funk and then obviously you're it's even more uh, engaging to find cats that are continually learning wanting to challenge themselves with new types of music and ultimately paving the way for uh, future generations understanding of how real music is made and the new development of musical vocabulary as well and my guest applies to all those um, criteria and uh, just back from alaska with the greenleaf rustlers john molo an honor welcome to the jake feinberg show hey hey it's it's great to be with you again jake and the, the last time we were together we were in that uh, entryway into, I think, uh, Moe's in, in, up in the Santa Cruz area, and we had a great conversation, so it's great to get back together with you again. And yes, I just did get back from Alaska with the Greenleaf Rustlers, and we had three nights of <coughs> great music, I thought. You know, I've we just let in with um, Henry from Moe's Alley from that night we did the first interview, and is there... A way for well, let me. I'm just going to read you this quote from um, <clears throat> that I uh, I had a chance to do a Facebook Live with uh, Ron Carter last summer, and then I want you oh, to just sure. just want you to riff on this any way you want related to the Greenleaf Rustlers or any bands that you're in. He said, "Rhythm sections in and of themselves do not increase musical vocabulary, but they certainly assist in that process." We're the backdrop of the soloists, which is piano, bass, and drums in this case. Our output and impact on their solos are a major force in whatever direction they choose to take their solo. We're not individually responsible for them playing different necessarily. As a group of three in this case, our individual concepts of how to play a rhythm, how to play changes, how to be a presence in the construct of the solo, in mounting the form, in maintaining whatever musical intent the band has, we share in that responsibility, depending on the horn player's responsibility to trust our judgment, to trust our direction in the music. Hopefully it will make them play notes that they practice at home. I call it their kitchen solos. You know, and, and I've interviewed Stanley Clark about this, and I really want to get you on the record as well. How can rhythm sections increase musical vocabulary? Traditional upright, and occasionally on piccolo bass. He has a really interesting take, and he mentioned horn player. So if you would, in my world, we'll switch that to the storyteller, the singer-songwriter. My job with those guys is to make them feel so comfortable that they're going to sing their best. Now, uh, singers, <clears throat> a lot of interpretation there, whether it's John Fogarty, Fogarty or Chris Robinson, Dave Nelson, everybody has a certain comfort zone. And I can pretty much tell by the body language of the singer and the way they're singing um, if I'm doing my job correctly. So for me, in my most recent endeavor this last weekend in Alaska, my thing is to get Chris into that place where he's not thinking about it. He's just feeling it. Uh, he's an excellent singer. So 
My thing, and from the rhythm section, is to get those other players comfortable. And interestingly enough, even though the drums, uh, the drum set is not traditionally tuned to perhaps A440 or a piano, we have to help the players groove and play in tune and feel comfortable. So that's a lot of where my responsibility is. And when Ron mentioned something about the kitchen solo, the way you feel when you're proud, yeah, that's what you want to get those guys to. You want them to be comfortable enough to just give it their all. And, and it's singers, yes, but also the soloists that you're playing with. Um, and occasionally we are responsible, I think, for taking it into some, you know, uncharted territory. So if I've played a solo with one of the guys, say we've got a guitar solo, and then the next thing that comes up is maybe a sax solo, I'm going to change the, uh, the sonic landscape, so to speak, when the guy starts his solo, maybe bring it down dynamically or give him some kind of space that's, where he can you know, articulate what he wants to do. So in, in, in my opinion, that's the job of being a really good drummer, making those other players feel comfortable, so comfortable that they want you back. And that's my thing right now. People say, when are you going to stop playing? <laughs> when they stop calling me. <laughs> well, no, okay, so I mean, because... Um... I want to, I mean, we're talking to a cat here who plays all music and you could find him in almost any setting and burning all the way to the heavens. And, you know, like you go back to, for instance, uh, the plug nickel sessions, uh, which I've chronicled quite a bit. Um, you know, it was Tony Williams, Ron Carter and, oh, that's a good, and Herbie. Sure. The, the, the story, I don't know. You there's, know, absolutely. Yeah. I think anybody going into jam band music or improvisational music should definitely check out Plug Nickel. Well, no, I, I, what I want to get at is this story, and if you know it, you can stop me, but the story that comes out of that is that, um, well, Ron's wife was having a baby, so they were. he was actually going back and forth every night after the gigs to New York to spend time in the, uh, in the hospital with his wife, but the, the point is that they were getting bored of the, they were. It was getting kind of a to be a formula trip with Miles. So they, Herbie and 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 Tony and and uh, and Ron, they got together and they made a blood oath and they said, "Listen, we are going to play the music how we feel it, how we feel it tonight. You know, because we're bored right now." And when they got to the gig, um, Miles had no idea, but he goes, "Yo, we're we're recording tonight." And they're like, oh, man, they're like, all right, we got to go with it anyway. We're going to go. We're going to do it. And what they did was they, you know, it basically was the beginning of taking the jazz stand, you know, basically the the great American songbook and leaving the head of the tune and breaking up time and form and going off into 16 or 17 minute instrumentals and then coming back in. And Miles was totally cool with it. Totally cool with it. And the point is that you could look at that. Or you could look at the idea of even going, like when I interviewed Tony Orlando. Tony Orlando used to go to the Village Gate with Bill Cosby and watch Latin Candido and Tito Puente, and there was no trap set. But what Tony told me in that was, I understood, it became the, those rhythms, the non-traditional rhythm sections, no, no, no drummer, that became a language of its own. Is there a time you can point in your career when you felt like, the rhythm section was I just I'm always searching for new vocabulary and whether it's easily translatable to my ear or not is there a way for you to talk about um, when you as in, in a rhythm section actually helped expand uh, vocabulary in music 
You mean the time, the first time I remember doing it? Yeah, I mean, like, like you said, you want to get, yeah, exactly. I mean, or, or just sometime when you were in any setting where it was like, wow, that we never played it that way, and we've never played it, we've never played it that same way again. Yeah, man, I was in Virginia Beach. I remember exactly one of the first times I started getting into that, and it's sort of uh, plug nickel tradition. Um, we were playing what we would call like American clave, like um, yeah. <laughs> most of the listeners would know it as uh, "Not Fade Away." That groove, that and I was playing with Hornsby, Bobby Hornsby, and Bruce Hornsby, and we were in Virginia Beach. And I had been hanging with some of the locals before the last set, and we were out back in the alley talking about music and and girls and politics and sports and all the stuff you talk about, you know, what was happening back then. And I went back in, and we started playing that, that groove. And out of nowhere, I just started playing you know, two and four. <laughs> and the band responded, and we took off into this other thing, total different direction, with a different feel, broke it down, then went back into the second line, kind of traditional clave feel. And afterwards, I thought, now that, if I was in the audience, that would have really gotten me. The band was going for it. It was uncharted territory in a certain way, even though it was not ridiculously technical. It was just a primordial metric modulation. It just worked. Oh, I love it. And I so that was one of the I first moments it. for me where I actually gave myself permission to, like, go for that. The other guys were cool with it. You were driving the bus a little bit, but you were providing a harmonic, a rhythmic landscape for them to, to play over. And so that was one of my first um, sort of epiphanies doing that. But you got to remember, those, those guys that you're mentioning, and I would say this for all musicians, it, it, when you listen to jazz, that doesn't mean you're going to end up playing it. Absolutely. It just means you're listening to it. I dig. And it's a major influence uh, for me. I was a jazz major at the University of Miami, but when I started playing with Phil Lesh, he liked that. He liked that aspect of my playing, and that's why I did so many shows. And when I first started working with Phil, and to a certain degree Bobby, but mostly Phil, I said, you know, I can't really do the impersonation of, of Billy Kreutzmann or Mickey. And Phil was like, well, John, that's why we hired you, to be your son, <laughs> to do your thing. And I thought, oh, well, that's a refreshing, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, I did. I that's did. a good outlook. He didn't want, you know, he didn't want me to, pay, you know, to do a, a tribute to any one particular guy. Be myself. And so, yeah, that's that's that, why that's just John. like that's, that's just what Miles Miles kept turning his back on Coltrane when he first joined the band because Coltrane kept saying, "What do you want me to play? What do you want me to play?" And Miles wasn't didn't actually verbally express it, but Coltrane eventually figured out he was turning his back on him because he wanted him to be himself. He brought him into the band to yeah. be himself, and that's what I love about uh, people like Phil. What's interesting is that. Um, I'm just so excited. I can. We have a game on this program called Name That Voice, uh, and I think we're going to start off here with one. It's it's deep in the bag. Uh, I think you're going to get it. Uh, take a listen to it, and then we'll come back and break okay. it. And come back and break it down. Well, you know, when you say to get that sound, there's a lot of different sounds of R&B. Like Beaver generally played a lot of Gibson stuff, mainly hollow bodies like L5s, MES-295s. Um, um, you know, things like that. Now, you take a guy, um, uh, you know, like a lot of the records that were on Stax, um, 
with Steve Cropper, that was a Telecaster. Um, you know, there's uh, a, a lot of the guys would use um, ES-335s, or a lot of the blues players used like those thin semi-hollow uh, electrics like BB King's, the 355 and a 345 and 335. Actually, some of his very early stuff even used the Les Paul. Um, but mm. Freddie King, he used the 345. Uh, Albert King actually was known for using an old Flying V, which those guitars are astronomically expensive now. Um, so there's not one guitar that kind of is the sound of all R&B and everything. It's a combination of a lot of stuff. Um, the Fender sound is more like a thin sound, great for rhythmic stuff, and uh, you'll hear that on, you know, like Curtis Mayfield used Fenders, um, and, um, you know, just a lot of the, uh, like a lot of the guys like with James Brown were using solid body guitars. One of them even used like this acoustic guitar, this acoustic solid body electric called the Black Widow, because they wanted that really trebly thin kind of for the rhythm type chinks uh, that, you know, that you hear in a I lot dig, of the old I dig, I dig, I dig, yeah. It wasn't mostly about solos back then. It was more about, you know, Playing the tune, the, the real body of the tune lies in the rhythm of the tune, not in the solos. Um, you know, if the rhythm is great and everything is locked in and together, you can solo over that and it sounds great. But if the rhythm's not there, and nothing works. You want to take a guess at who that is? Well, it's funny. During, during that, I was like, I recognize this voice. It took me about 30 seconds and I went, I talked to this guy. <laughs> this guy is actually someone I know really well. I know you do. And then I went, it's Norm. <laughs> Molo's one for one, dude. You're one, you got a, you got a base knocked driving in two runs. That was my interview with... Oh, uh, man, Norm, he is, he is just... I mean, we're tight in a number of ways. He's one of my favorite local merchants. I live a couple of miles away. But just to show you how, like, cool and accommodating he is. I walked in there one day with a young artist that I work with. You know her as Katie Skeen. Absolutely. She's a California kind, young Katie. Yeah. And they were so nice to her. She picked up a guitar. She played it. Norm heard her and said, let me, let me, let me video this. We'll put you on the website. You know, 100,000 hits or views later, you know, Katie's in there. And I went in recently with uh, another young musician, uh, interestingly enough, his name is Brian Jones. His parents were not aware that they named him after one of the Rolling Stones. <laughs> young Brian Jones. We know him as the wonderful lead guitarist in Vampire Weekend with hmm. the big afro or wow. the bass player with Gwen Stefani. Walked in there with Brian. He was immediately embraced by Norm and the entire staff. Played some bass. Uh, Norm, I can't say enough about his just general demeanor He's a wealth of information, and he's a nice person. Well, I also, I, the reason the reason I played that, because obviously Norm's rare, I mean, the dude, I, I just have to, I have a deep gut, primordial gut feeling that you and him were cooking, were, I mean, he was in a band called Katmandu down in Miami. Did you know each other when you were down there? No, we didn't, but we talked about it a lot. We talked about a number of the bands down there and players. Uh, there was a band called The Impact of Brass. Uh, we, of course, talked about the local phenom at the time, Jocko Pistorius, God rest his soul, and how uh, Bruce Hornsby and I crossed paths with Jocko a little bit. I saw Jocko down in Miami, but we did talk a little bit about Miami, and, you know, I know him as a merchant, but he, uh, you know, selling guitars 
initially, but what a wealth of information and a lot of great stories. He's, he, a, he's a wonderful guy to know. Yeah, because I, I saw that Katie, Katie Marie. I, I mean, it, you know, I, I, I saw her. I saw that clip from that store, and I said, "Wait a minute." I mean, like, well, either Molo is a you know local customer, or they're going back to the days of, of like you know University of Miami. I mean, were you? That, I, 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 I ask you this. You know, you know, whatever comes to your mind first, you can just riff on it. But what have you been able to take? from your experience in the academy, in academia, and consistently be able to translate it onto the bandstand? I ask you only because if musical vocabulary is being created today because of the lack of touring circuits, vigorous touring circuits, um, it's being made kind of within the four walls of academia, and a lot of kids are coming out with huge chops and huge facility, but they don't really know how to have that essence of the conversation that me and you thrive on with motion and and lafaro and evans and and i'm like well okay you got your musical degree so tell me what you can honestly apply real real-time application on the bandstand from what you learned at university of miami okay that's a a deep question i'm going to try to touch on this briefly at the university of miami it was a very fun school to go to, a lot of energy, a lot of ambition. Now, we were music majors, and we were bowing down at the altar of Coltrane and Charlie Parker and traditional great bebop. But at the same time, there was a student body, a studentry that was listening to Pink Floyd and the Stones and Queen. So when I would come back from the music department, we would do something called, you know, <laughs> Sitting down and listening to vinyl, a communal listening. A communal, with, communal. With Thank regular... you. Thank you. Yep, go ahead. Yeah, so, and, and that's where I noticed this. This weekend, we did three gigs, and, and we were hanging with uh, Chris Robinson, who I think is just a great lead singer. And he lives music to the point where when we hang out, we don't put earphones in. Chris, listen cum- uh, together. He just plays it in the air. He doesn't put in earplugs or, or headphones. So this weekend, whether we were listening to Gabor Zabo or <laughs> Muddy Waters or this latest rap artist that Chris found out of Atlanta, we listened together. So while the music is going down, we're like, oh, man, that's interesting. Gabor Zabo did a version of Bang Bang. I know it from Sonny and Cher. They had a hit with it. Um, it's communal listening is very important. So at the university, in the day, there were groups of four or five people that would listen together and discuss the music afterwards. It wasn't isolated. And I think that's a huge, huge uh, factor that's missing. That's why you, uh, what you said, I'll reiterate, Bruce Hornsby said a similar thing. Man, there are so many young, talented Americana players that come out whether it's Miami or Berkeley or, you know, USC or just learning it on their own through video. But is it great? Is it inspired? Is it original? That's the whole thing. The technical part can be taught. Right. But the communal part and understanding what moves people, the primordial part. You know, you're going from the heart up into the head at the university. What the university doesn't touch on is from your heart or your head down into the primordial parts of getting it down to the point where people embrace it. So we could play really atonal, far out music 
if it has a great groove, like a James Brown thing going on in the background, some feel that just is infectious, you can play that way. You can take it out harmonically, and that's what I've always wanted to do. You get adventurous, but keep something in there that can keep the people, like, in it. And so that's what I got out of, uh, well, like the university. But I got the technical part from the school. The listening part I got from hanging out with just, we'll call them, Everyday students, the regular student body. <laughs> Did you? And that's where I heard, yeah. I remember the first time I heard Queen, I was like, man, uh, I think Ira Greenberg found it. I don't know, one of my roommates. Ira that. Greenberg. I mean, I lo- this is, un- I, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, he had, he had all the latest stuff, or even, that was in college, but if I go back to high school, I remember the guy that had all the cool records was Hoyt Vandenberg. <laughs> I don't know how he found out about these records, but it would be to the point where we'd go to his house in the afternoon after school, and he'd say, Oh, I got this musician I found. Uh, his name is uh, Muddy Waters or Howlin' Wolf, and he's got an electric guitar. And we'd listen to him and he'd say, "Man, he's he's like playing Zeppelin and Stones tunes. How'd this old guy find out about Zeppelin?" And of course, he was like, "No, man, Zeppelin found out about him. Stones <laughs> found out about these guys." So I always had some kind of, you know, indirect musical mentor when it came to vinyl. Somehow I found these guys and. They were not music. Well, they they played a little bit, but they weren't. You know, they were. Uh, they had other skills, but as far as music goes, they could listen and uh, enlighten. And well, both. Uh, uh, so both I, those guys did it for me. I have a couple. This is interesting because Leland Sklar, I've interviewed five times. He he said the same thing. I mean, number one, the concept, the idea of a concept album has kind of disappeared. You have younger musicians now who are making EPs now. and things like that, but. Um, like when you're with Chris and Greg and Barry and Pete and you guys are listening, okay, so you take a cover that Gabor, uh, Gabor Zabo did. I mean, are you, are you listening to that with the idea of how do we incorporate that into certain tunes that you're playing, or are you thinking if we if maybe we can actually put this into our bag? Probably both. You know, mine is just an idea. Like, I remember I just read to Chris and said, man, that was, that was really good, that vocal. And he was like, yeah, man, you know, the guy's really good. So as far as tune selection goes, you know, mostly since Chris is singing and, you know, it's, it's basically, you know, he's the, he's, he's the leader in that way, uh, you know, he's going to pick the tunes. But as far as listening, yeah, I was like, that's a, that's a great piece. You know, I mean, we, we do a Bee Gees song called To Love Somebody. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people think that's kind of a sappy pop tune uh, maybe it is but it's also a great tune it's a great song oh, it's, and, it's, and, and it just yeah. it great and I wouldn't have thought to put that on the list but when it was there I was like wow <laughs> and then we played it and I was like I know this I know the emotion of this the spirit of this song what it's supposed to be so I don't know if I answered your question no 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 I mean you know what it is it's just because the significance of music especially with I mean I'm 41 but even younger generations it's uh, it's uh, music is made I remember people saying, uh, Phil Randland, great trombone player, music is made for pacification. Music, D.D. Bridgewater, music is now made for, for multitasking. Uh, you said it best. I mean, people have their earphones in. So it's very isolationist. And I'm just trying to get the idea when you actually have musicians and then take it a step further and it's an actual band. Um, you know, when you're having these listening sessions, um, you do you guys play essentially... Uh, mostly your own versions of tunes but you know when you're listening to new stuff i'm always curious as if 
you know, with a bunch of seasoned veterans? Is it about incorporating, you know, extending the bag of music or finding parts of those tunes to say, this might work in this version that we play? You know, it's always fascinating to me uh, how that stuff works out because it doesn't, people don't listen to music as together anymore. That's really more, I think it's a, it's a huge issue. It, it, oh, it absolutely is. Because after you listen to 45 minutes of music, or even a single, a four-minute, you can discuss it and the arrangement, the feel of it, why it worked, what the lyric was, the melody. Um, I just wanted to touch briefly on, I like mentioned Lee Sklar. You know, I've played with Lee probably, I don't know, 30 times over the last 20 years. Wow. The guy, I, I don't think he's ever made a mistake. And if he did make a mistake, <laughs> I think maybe one time... He went to a uh, course maybe a half a bar earlier. I looked up and he looked at me like, I can't believe I just did that. So, so, you know, one mistake in 20 years with Lee. And, know, and, and it, it always I, feels I, I mean, so good. I mean, what, what, what settings were you, were you on tour with, with him? What was, what was going on? No, no, usually just some kind of like a studio date. I mentioned like doing Hill Street Blues or Hardcastle McCormick, uh, some Mike Post shows where you go in and sight read. Leland would be on those because... You know, you, you don't think it because he's so natural. He's a great reader and a great just sort of like he understands. As John Schofield would say to me, I understand the spirit of the Grateful Dead, what's trying to come across. Lee understands the spirit of and intent of most music, just the way it's written. He's an incredible player. So when I sit down with Lee, you know, we really don't talk about a whole lot, just how you doing, is your life okay, are you, are you healthy? And then we sit down and play music. and. One of the things I loved about the last time I worked with Lee was he was about 10 feet away from me, or maybe, maybe let's say five yards away from me, or like 15 feet, and we just looked at each other the whole time. We didn't really talk about what we were going to play, but I could see his hands and he could see my hands. And, you know, I know when he's there that the session's probably going to go down pretty smoothly, and I hope he feels that way about me. Just a great player. So... Lee, I have a great intimacy with, but it's unspoken. I'm not, we don't hang out, you know, but when we see each other, it's great to see him, and I consider him a musical brother. And uh, for the people out there, you know, you know him as the guy with the big beard, and you've seen him with James Taylor, but what a player he is. Well, let me tell you, man, I mean, the the section, which, you know, which was Kunkel, him, Dergy, and Cooch, they opened for... Um, early on the original version of Mahavishnu Orchestra uh, and they went on tour together and um, sure enough after the tour one uh, Billy Cobham's in the studio uh, doing his first solo album Spectrum and Stanley Clark's in there with with Billy and and after after they did a couple of takes of the tunes Billy's like there's just too much language here there's just too much talking going on and sure enough picks up the phone because he he had watched the section I mean they weren't the section wasn't trying to be Mahavishnu. They could never have done that. They they were doing their thing, and uh, I remember them. Sure. Yeah, and he called Lee Sklar and said, "Listen, I need you. To, I need you to come out for to play a couple of tunes." And I mean, the the old, so Lee takes a red eye to New York, and the next thing you know, they're playing Stratus, that hypnotic tune with Tommy Bolin, and that's Lee and, and Billy cooking the groove. I mean, it's just un it, Lee. Yeah. Yeah, Unreal. There you go, man. A lot yeah. of people don't know that's Leland. That's Leland, man. He's freaking man. ridiculous, man. I mean, I listen. It, it, I'll I'll get your email and send you all this stuff. Um, these in, these interviews because you are just going to be dying. I got another name that voice. This one's going to be close to your heart as well. 
Um, let's take a listen and we'll come back. Okay. Well, I'll tell you, uh, when the Grateful Dead started, they would do just, you know, the very first years, like, you know, what was that, 60, uh, 65, four, yeah. 55, yeah. Uh, I'd go along on the gigs, and they would play these clubs, and that was go-go dancing and stuff like that, and they would just play stock songs and everything. And then once in a while, there'd be one song where Jerry would stretch out, and that was very unusual. And they kept doing it and developing that and developing that pretty soon, a couple of years, three years later or so. They're doing these long extended jams as the main thing of the song, you know, and then and then morphing it into another song. And then all of a sudden they're in, they're playing another song. And it turns out this that last song that they played was a group of songs and it lasted 20 minutes. Yeah. And then by the time the new writers started in 1970, I would be backstage I would be back behind the amplifiers on stage watching the dead play after our set we'd play our opening set and then I'd get on stage and watch uh, the dead set and I tell you people would just leave in droves they would start one of those long jams and the seats would empty out people would go to the lobby as the, the excuse was like I got to get something to drink or something like that and it just flood out of the building I remember time stuck talking to Steve Parrish going look at them they're just flooding out of the building you know <laughs> this is unbelievable this, yeah no I did. well this was a new thing this was a brand new thing this is people were there to see a rock band and then all of a sudden there's this you know and uh, people wanted to hear I guess people wanted to hear a song that was identifiable you know that you could say oh I heard that song okay I like this song you know and uh, Garcia was just like uh, firm about it. No, we're not going to go there. And they and they had the record label and uh, various officials, promoters and stuff, saying, "Please, you know, play songs." You know, and Garcia would say, "Ah, who needs it?" He would get lectured by somebody, and the person would say, "You know, you see that it's this way, and we can make more money. We sell more tickets. People want this, and people want that. So why don't you just..." And we sit over to that, and Garcia says, "Ah, who needs it?" <laughs> uh, you know who that is? Of course, that <laughs> is my yes. musical buddy, part-time monologist, part-time oracle, and like I said, great storyteller. That's Dave Nelson. He's darn right. Who I it will is. be performing with. I'm going to come Am see. I correct. You are two for two with two doubles to the gap so far. I mean, it's unbelievable. Um, they're going to get harder as we go along here. But I, this is what I wanted to talk to you about. And and it's this idea like, okay, you go see Greenleaf Rustlers. You guys are not playing any original tunes. But the truth is you make those – I mean, like George Porter would say that when they were on Bourbon Street back when it was really Bourbon Street pre-meters – they would be taking Stephen Stills tunes and turning them inside up, inside out, upside down. You guys do the same thing, and that to me is a, an, a righteous way to do it. But the the baby boomer generation, uh, and I don't want to be overly general, but you know, Journey, Steve Miller, Tower of Power. I mean, people are going to see and hear things that they that they're used to hearing. And the thing about that stood out for me about that what david was talking about was the tenacity 
of Garcia and the dead for the most part to say, you know, we are going to play with the spirit. Like you said, Schofield, they're going to play the spirit of jazz. They're not playing jazz, but they're going to play improvisational music the way Lee Morgan or Miles Davis, they'd say, listen, we dig our music. And the, and their, and the, and the message to the audience was, we hope you dig the music, but even if you don't, we're still going to play it. And I just feel like yeah. to, today it's like we've gotten into this thing where it's like people want to go and hear exactly what it sounds like on the album. And I'm wondering with Hornsby or Fogarty or even before that, was there a time in a band where you guys were like, nah, eh, like like Nelson said, eh, what's the point? What's the use? We're not going to play this. We don't I mean we're going to play. We are going to do something new, and we have the tenacity to stick with it to get the momentum in order to grow. Can you just riff on that? Yeah, man, you got to have that musical endurance. We would call it. One of my friends, uh, we know him as 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 a, an author and a writer and a musician, as a venture capitalist, whatever. Roger McNamee. Hmm. His observation about the music business is: you better have some thick skin and endurance to be able to get through it. And fortunately for Jerry or Dave's description where he goes, who needs it, really, that three-minute song? There's so many people doing that. Let's go for something else. Now, the dead had the musical endurance. Their audience found them, and they found their audience. Sometimes that doesn't happen musically. Sometimes it's under the radar. People don't go to see it. But somehow the dead were able to get through that period solo. They don't leave. They relish it. They know that's – they went back to hear it. If you If you – if you recorded the the set or the music and you went back to listen to it and you'd say, oh, right, that's where they made that mistake. I was there. I noticed that mistake. And then they they didn't derail. They kept going. They got it going. Whereas if you heard a recording of, of like a Journey cover band or, you know, Don't Stop Believing by Journey or whoever, and they're doing it exactly like it, like the album, how would you know you were there even? It's so nailed it. antiseptic. And, and there's not really anything too special about it. I've, over the years, gone back and looked at things like, you know, I got to play with Don Henley on the Grammys. We played End of the Innocence, or, or you mentioned playing with Fogarty. It's a little bit the same each night. With John, I always was like, John, or, or to his brother Bob, Bob Fogarty, I'd say, Bob, let's switch the set list up, man. Why would you come back two nights? Or, or two nights in a row to hear the exact same show and rap. Uh, change it up a little bit. And that's what the dead did. They were, they were so ahead of the curve. So when we go to do three nights in Alaska with Chris, you can pretty much count on the fact that we're going to do a different set every night. And the song that you may have missed that first night, you'll get it the next night. And I think that's one of the things that promoters – uh, some of the, I don't want to call them dinosaurs, but just in the traditional sense of the word, um, they want that, that thing, that tangible sameness to sell tickets. But in the long run, I think what sells tickets, especially to our audience, is the delivery and the authenticity and to make it special for that audience every night. So that's what I try to do. Yeah, I mean, you know, the dead are, uh, to me, it's like they're a little bit of an outlier, but I mean, I you know, all those bands from that, that bastion, I mean, the Sons of Champlin, you know, I mean, none none of those guys were, I mean, their live performance, people, the love-hate relationship with the Grateful Dead, and I never saw them once. 
Um, but I can't stop listening to Live Dead. Um, and it's, you know, early 80s Grateful Dead, especially. But it's like, um, you know, people are like, I hate the Grateful Dead. It's because they've been listening to the jukebox versions of Skeletons in the Closet. I mean, it, none of those bands, Sons of Champlin, Sly Stone, uh, you know, the list goes on, you know, even you know, Santana to a degree, um, none, the, the, none of their shows, live shows, were ever, you know, uh, I, I forget the word you used, uh, uh, you know, it, it just, they were always different than what was on the album. To me, that that is revelatory. I, I just wonder about, like, um, you know, with Pete Sears, for instance, I mean, when I interviewed Pete, um, he, he kind of said basically with, as, as it relates to his bass playing, he doesn't even know where it comes from. He just, he just feels it. He just plays it. I mean, it's just totally natural. Obviously, he's an amazing piano player, too. He's just amazing. But, I mean, do you have to have a certain kind of constitution as a musician in order to let the reins go? And allow things yes. to te- this tempos to speed up and slow down. I just some of those. Th- I think it's just important to talk about some of the nuanced qualities away from the techni- techniques and the and the book learning and what it takes in order to have a tune that you know the tune and then you're able to take it out into it and make it a, a, something completely different. Yeah, I'll mention a couple people, and now Fogarty, I'll mention by name, John. And jam, man. You listen to Heard It Through the Grapevine or right. Q. Yeah. But when we played live, I would occasionally try to prompt him and the band to just let it go a little bit. Don't play the sequence that you know is going to work. Give the audience a treat and let's go for it. Uh, John is not so much out of that world. He could be if he wanted to. But his his renditions of those songs are, are pretty pretty standard. Um and then there's another guy that, uh, and the audience will know who this is. I don't even have to mention it. You know, when you're playing drums up there, uh, you're looking around, you're like, uh, I would say, you're like the border collie guy. <laughs> you're trying to get all the, all the pack in together playing. Right. So I got this one guy every once in a while, and he's a stray. He's a runner. He's always like, he's not with the pack. And uh, we'll start the song off, we'll count it off, and all of a sudden he'll play one note, and he'll turn around and start like EQing his amp for like a minute. And so the band gets into a groove and then he'll come up after he EQs and gets the sound together and kind of look at and you didn't join in until now. And now you're trying to tell me and the band where you would like it. And that to me is one of the ultimate no-nos of jam band. It's supposed to be communal, not one guy running it. So. And you know who I'm talking about. I know you know. Uh, but that's one of the tough things. So when people will, like, turn around and, like, especially with Phil, if anybody ever turns to the band and says, speed it up or slow it down, I say, tell Phil, and I'll go with him. Right. But I'm not going to split it up. You know, because basically if you have a chart, like, you know, written music, we'll go back to that, like the difference. If it says accelerando on it, <laughs> you know, to speed up. Yeah. That's the whole band. It's not one guy. You don't look at the percussion section and go, okay, speed it up. <laughs> Accelerandos, the accelerandos, crescendos, pianissimo, forte, all that, that's written for the entire ensemble, whether it's a duet, even a solo performance, the dynamics. So that's, 
that's the hard part that the band needs to move together in a communal way and I'm not alpha dogging it out there but I'm trying to get everybody into a comfortable spot so that's that's one of the things in jamming give yourself permission and don't try to control it let it go like you said every once in a while can you just I think you were saying can you let it go man can you let the let reins go, go. yeah but I just want to as Ornette would say Ornette Coleman told Bruce and I wish I could quote him a little bit because Bruce does a good vocal impersonation of Ornette <laughs> um, it sort of sounded like Mike Tyson to me but he, Ornette <laughs> said to Bruce, they're, they're not they're not playing the music they're playing a sequence Right. They're playing the notes that fit in those chords. I don't want to hear the sequence. I want to hear music. I really relate to what Ornette said. I wasn't there, but that's what I walked away with when Bruce told me about Ornette talking about harmonics or music. The thing that stuck out was not the technical explanation, but to play music. That's what we're doing up there. We're not, don't play a, anybody. You can teach somebody, like I said, the technique of how to play bebop, the note selection, what goes over certain changes as they say but to play music that's a different thing so that's that's what we're going for and uh anyway i hope no i know do you you i, I mean this is like i mean that. it's like a dream i just interviewed gary barone and he was talking about um uh just the idea of themes and variations that that but i just want to go back because the the phone cut out for one second with this un, unknown this 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 dude this person on stage they are going to tune uh, their instrument for a while and everybody gets into a groove and then that person comes back and then they want they want they want it on their terms is that what I is that what I read you correctly there yes that's kind of it yeah. that's kind of it they took the time they weren't ready to go their instrument wasn't in tune or their sound wasn't right and the band gets into the space and the individual comes in and like oh I want to change it now uh. I'm kind of like Oh, that's a tough one, right? Yeah. Well, I know who you're. I believe I know who you're talking about, and it is a no. I mean, it's to me, it's it, there's um. I, yeah, I totally dig it. I mean, you're throwing so much great, great content. Did did you would you say that when you started to um, play with Hornsby and you were uh, opening shows for the Grateful Dead, did did that sort of harmonic that that ornette concept of no bar lines and that kind of you know the the, the leshian approach did that rub off on you guys at all or had you already sort of been doing that kind of stuff oh man well bruce here's the deal bruce knew early on bruce is a sagacious cat man uh, you know however you say the word he's the sage man in a lot of ways hard working it's hard to outwork that guy he's he's incredible great <laughs> role model for work ethic, Bruce Hornsby, but Bruce, you know, in essence, when Brent was having some issues physically and the guy started talking to Bruce about maybe playing with him, you know, and then eventually Bruce ended up playing and Brent passed away, um, I said, why would you want to do it? And he says, because Jerry and Hunter wrote probably 40 great tunes and Bobby and Barlow wrote another 10 and Phil's got some and they're is great. The songs are great. Yeah. That's what makes the band great, not the players necessarily. So it rubbed off on us a little bit, and we were at, I think, Laguna Seca. Bill Graham was there, Ry Cooter, The Dead, Bruce Hornsby in the range. So we go out there, we play, and we do pretty well. And the band is in the middle of doing the Touch of Grey video at night, late at night, so it's a, it's a happening scene, man. I'm, I'm digging it. Wow. Uh, first wow. time I heard them was maybe 73 in American Union. They're still great. The, the audience is great, and 
So we play the first night, and the dead's doing the video thing, and then we come out the next day, and it's mid-afternoon, I think. And we play the first couple of the tunes. And Bruce and I recall this a little bit differently, and two young men in the front row look up at Bruce and say, Hey, Bruce. You're not going to play the same set, are you? <laughs> and oh, man. Uh, had a bit of an epiphany of like, yeah. oh, that's right. We've been playing right. this same set, you know, across the United States basically every night. But here we are the next day playing for the same crowd. They don't want to hear the same set. So I, as I recall, Bruce went into some blues, you know, I got the blues in my breakfast cereal or <laughs> some old song and we changed it up a little bit but that was one of the things we learned quickly it didn't take bruce long to you know remember oh right this is the grateful dead these people were here yesterday the same people we got to change it up so that rubbed off on us in a big way and to have that return customer so to speak those people if you look at it like they've hired us for the afternoon or the evening we are there to make their spirituality or whatever come to life it's our, it's the obligation of noblesse oblige. It's the obligation of the artist, the nobility, to connect and elevate that audience, move them to some place. So that's what I got out of it, and I think Bruce learned the same thing. You go to hear Bruce, even though he has hit records, he changes his setup. You know, I mean, his his musical set, probably every night. And uh, yeah, that's that rubbed off on us for sure. It's um. We're about ten games into the season. Uh, Major League Baseball Tigers are off. My t- my team, the Tigers, are off to a seven and three start. Ron Gard and I, are, I think, actually, we might win the division this year. Believe it or not, even though we have an, a totally no name team. But you're two for two so far. Let's see if you can go three for three right now on the Jake Feinberg show. We okay, got here. We go. We'll make that baseball analogy. Yeah, here we go. Well, you know what Charlie Parker told me one time when I was uh, I asked him a question about what did he practice. He told me. You listen to the radio, and everything that comes on there, you play with it, and you figure out what key it's in, and you you play with it. And once you do that, that means you cross styles, you cross tonalities, you cross every element possible in music. And uh, I think that's very true, and uh, I don't tell kids to practice what they hear on the radio because they don't really listen to the radio now. It's all online. Everything is online now. And, uh, you know, so uh, they don't have the variety. Either you're listening to hip-hop or you're not. That's what it is today. And other than pop music, then pop popular music, uh, what's his name? Justin Bieber and those kind of people uh, present another kind of music uh, that, that young people are interested in because it, it is attractive because of the money that they make doing that music. They don't make any money imitating Ornette Coleman or Coltrane. You that's artistic. You know that they don't make money doing that. I know, but there's all right. That's this. This is you, this is a two strike count, and I'm going to throw you. A sw- who do you got? Who do you got for us? Do you want to take a guess? Yeah, I. I- I know. I think I oh, know who this is. Oh, hey, by the way, I just, just, I, I want to give you a clue. I want to give you. I want to give you a clue. He, yeah. he plays the same instrument you do. Yeah. Okay. That, that, that really helps because I had narrowed it down to two people, and uh, oh boy, mainly from their cadence and their being around each other. I'm going to pick uh, my brother Zig or George Porter. Um. Well, first of all. I, no, Johnny Vodakovich. 
<laughs> uh, no, dude. Tootie Heath. Tootie Heath. Tootie Heath. Tootie Heath, man. Where, where did Tootie grow up? Because his accent was, I thought it was George for a second. Okay, so the, but, and I, no, I'll send you um, all these interviews. Uh, Tootie grew up in Philly with Percy and, and Jimmy. Uh, obviously, his bro- right, his brothers, right, exactly. And Tootie and I, I mean, we've done a couple great interviews, and uh, but yeah, he's he he's he's Philadelphia born and raised. Uh, Zig, I haven't. Yeah, I thought it was a New Orleans cat. I love his cadence. <laughs> I don't know him. I mean, I know of those. I brothers. know, no, 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 they're legendary. Well, no, the reason I asked you that is, I want, I want, I believe that Molo, uh, because I mean, there were analog cassette decks and things like that but for the most part david you talk to david hood from the swampers or tootie nobody you he said bird would listen to the radio of all the tunes that were being played by human beings there weren't any drum machines and he had to learn each of those tunes and to play them in every key and i understand you don't have notes on the drum kit but i'm curious about if you could talk about how your ear how you helped your ears grow by listening to all kinds of music, if that's what you did on the radio, and then and then and then how you really allowed that to become part of your constitution. Okay, that's a funny question. So I'm going to say, yeah, I'm absolutely a radio guy. Uh, I love popular music. It's just, it's a very interesting thing. Now, the music that I'm talking about that was popular is not, you know, Justin or the, the contemporary guys. I'm talking like, why was Take Five a hit? By Dave Brubeck, uh, Paul Desmond, I think the alto player wrote it. It's a five-four, cool, cool yeah. song. Joe Morello. Yeah. That became a hit. Instrumental hits surprised me. The theme from Hill Street Blues, or mm-hmm. a TV show that mm-hmm. becomes a hit. Always been interested in that, but also the singing, the spoken word. I, I, you know, had a bit of an imitation thing. I, I love to impersonate different singers for myself, not for anyone else. But love. Love pop music. I, Ricky Nelson, those records growing up as a kid, I thought were super cool. Of course, Elvis, all the Motown stuff, anything I could get my hands on, I really liked. But here's the interesting part that um, sort of, I don't know, it really helped me. St. Francis Xavier Catholic School. The hip, one of the hippest schools yeah. in the world. I mean, you're, the nuns there were markedly different than the ones in Langley. You talked to me about that. Yeah, I told you, man. Yeah. My nuns were singing nuns. <laughs> dude, I, those were, unreal. The, the hippest cats in the world. The, yeah, I told you that in, in Santa Cruz. I had those nuns, and we would, we would sing at the drop of a hat. I think when the classroom got too unruly for the nuns, because we had a bunch of rough little kids there at St. Francis Xavier. <laughs> yeah, inner cities of D.C., dude. <laughs> all, I love it. All races, colors, and creeds fighting each other it. in the playground. It was a beautiful thing. But we, we had that music thing in common. I think when we got too unruly, the nuns would just pull out turkey in the straw, like I said, and we'd just <laughs> rip into it. So I had that great background, and my parents were always listening to music, whether it was popular, what was on the radio. Whatever was on the radio at that time, my mom was digging. And then after work, my dad was digging those Bach Brandenburg concertos and I just had a, I was just fortunate to be around it and to be able to hear it. Um, what you touched on briefly was really interesting. If you say to most kids, "Can you play blues?" They'll go, "Yeah, I'll play blues and play the blues pattern, you know, twelve bar, whatever." Uh, uh, you talked about learning to play styles of music in every key. Yep. Right. Yep. Is that what Charlie Parker did? He sure did. Yeah, man. So you talked to Baracko. When did Baracko get stumped? 
Well, somebody threw him a blues in a in a very unorthodox key. Oh, Rob wow. said, and everybody said, "Oh yeah, I can play blues. Sure, man, I can play." You know, even I'll talk to kids that graduate from uh, USC. Do you can you play like a reggae? Thing? Yeah, I know it. I know it. It's like they know the beat or they know the sequence, but the guts of the music is a different thing. So Baracko, I think one night I can't remember what key the blues was in, but it was very unorthodox, and he stumbled through it, and he hated that. Wow. So to this day, he still practices blues in the unusual keys, you know, the tough keys, the challenging keys. So I do think that listening to music on the radio and finding the really deep tracks, the great stuff, uh, is the way to go. When I played recently with Bentmont Tench at the Cap Theater in New York with mm-hmm. Bill Schofield and Jackie, mm-hmm. it's a lot of fun, but Bentmont knows his records. It seems like Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers had a, a thing with recordings, man, these guys make some cool records, but Bentmont Tench really understands the, the element, the mood of the music, what's trying to be conveyed, and it's not an overly technical thing, but man, he's listened to a lot of, lot of radio and a lot of music, so that's where it's at, I think, for a lot of people, the voice, you know, I mean, I am an absolute freak for Dionne Warwick. Hal David and Burke Backrat. Dude, I think they killer. put down some of the greatest stuff, and you know, you can hear it, you know, um, Promises, promises. Uh, what do you get when you fall in love? The look of love. What the world needs now is love. But you go to Aretha Franklin, uh, say a little prayer. That is just, and as Stevie Wonder says, once she does one of those songs, it's hers forever. <laughs> and the chorus in that is, uh, you know, uh, the moment I wake up, before I put on my makeup, I say a little prayer. But when she gets to the chorus, she sets it up in a very musical way that chorus is in 11 so one two three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven one but when you go back and listen to aretha do it man she makes that chorus jump it's just unbelievable so all these artists you know that i've been mentioning but i think aretha dion uh, and, and on those dion warwick records you could correct me if i'm wrong i'm thinking it's the the great drummer Gary Chester. You, no, you nailed it. And they were all in the same room at the same time. That's the other part of it. You, Gary Chester was That's doing, the other thing, the communal thing I was talking exactly, about. Exactly, exactly. You're playing with Gary Chester, man. You better be delivering some goods because he's not going to screw it up. <laughs> <laughs> Whether it's the Four Seasons or Aretha or whoever, Dion, he's making those records. Little Anthony and the Imperials, he's making those records happen. And so, uh, yeah, and it was communal. It was in a room with, with a band. Mara- and, and maybe yeah. even the singer. Uh, Rick Murata, um told me that um, sometimes he'll be in an, uh, in an adjacent room and, and he'll hear uh, some drum beats going on and he's like, that's got to be a machine. This is contemporary. And he walks in and it's a human being playing machine parts. Um, yes. It's really, I mean, what you're talking about is the feel. It has to feel good. Molo, Chester, Bill Lavorgna, uh, Purdy, I mean, all Murata, the songs felt good because everybody has their own human rhythm. I mean, is there, with any students you have, or do, do you feel like there, it's, do you feel like it's somewhat, I don't want to say it's an obligation or a job, but how do you try to wean them off of that perfect, that, that, that machine vertical sound because it's so sterile my daughters future generations i i want them to be i do my show so that future generations understand how real music is made do do you have any do do you ever feel like you know 
yeah, someone might get off on hip hop tracks and they, you know, sampling and this, but the beats themselves, they're just mechanical. Do, do you feel an impetus to have to wean some cats off of that if you're, if you're teaching them? Yeah, but you know, their, their time comes. You know, when they're, I remember I, uh, I have a, a young guy I've worked with and now he's 28. His name is Brandon McCusker. He's played with Jenny Lewis. Most recently, um, he was, he's been, he had been working with Ryan Adams. Now, I, I don't know what's going to happen with Ryan uh, as far as touring, but yeah. this guy was playing with Ryan. Now, he's 28. Now, when I first started working with him, he didn't really want to talk to me about Jeff Beccaro and Toto or whatever. He was probably more into, like, uh, and Brendan, uh, if you hear this, you can correct me if I'm wrong, <laughs> probably more into, like, Between the Buried and Me or Meshuga or Speed Metal, something really athletic. He was, like, 12 years old, 14. It's 14. Of course, that's what he's going to listen to. But like I said, by the time he got into his mid-20s, all of a sudden he found himself playing Americana. His parents were kind of like, you know, like mine. A lot of music around the house. Actually, his parents were musicians. And eventually, he kind of weaned himself off of it naturally. You know, off the machines and the sequences. Interesting. He's done gigs Interesting. like that, because kids that age do that. But he also has the other side. Of playing like a human. And by the way, Rick Morata. Yep. You know my favorite track is Don't Take Me Alive, Steely Dan. Well, I saw that performance with Phil, track. man. I, mean, I do Don't Take Me Alive. Pet, my, my daughters and I are cranking Peg in the car. He's cranking, he's rocking Peg on Asia. It's unreal. Peg is great. Uh, the best. That is just. <laughs> so uh, Warren one night, Warren Haynes said, Hey, Molo, come on down. Now, I try to impersonate Warren, but I sound like Bill Clinton. <laughs> hey, Molo, why don't you come down to the uh, wheel turn tonight? We're going to play this song called uh, Don't Take Me Live. You know it? And I said, yeah, Royal Scam, Rick Murata's on, it's Rick Murata's song with those other guys playing with him. That's right. That's right. I love those tracks. And went up to Rick one time at the NAMM show, and, you know, I'm an East Coast guy at heart, and Ricky's from New York. I, I saw Rick there, and I walk up and go, hey, Ricky. He turned around and looked at me like he was going to knock my fucking head off. Dude, the <laughs> I, guy, I mean. Rick, it's Molo. <laughs> and he went, oh, hey, man, how's it going? I said, you ready for a compliment? And he goes, Okay. I told him I'd love that track, and, and he, he was very gracious. And one of my favorite drummers, obviously. And you know what? Did not um, did not pick up drumsticks until he was 19 years old. He just learned to dance at uh, the Apollo with his parents and his brothers and sisters. And a lot of people don't even know this, but he was in a band called the Riverboat Soul Band uh, with Mac Rebinac and then Charlie Neville. And Charlie taught him. Charlie moved to New York, and he taught him how to play a New Orleans shuffle. I, this whole thing is just so magnetic because it's the, it, we go back to the communal thing, um, and it's so desperately needed um, in a time when we have now technology has created so much separation and isolation um, to bring that stuff back together. This, I mean, again, we're 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 channeling we're channeling baseball here with Molo, and and I'm going to read you this quote. I don't have the um, I don't have the uh, the the audio queued up, but I want you to just relate to it the best you can and, um, and then, and then uh, analyze it. This is from Johnny V. Okay. I've done four interviews with Johnny. He goes, I get tremendous ideas and inspiration from watching certain sports. I love baseball. There's no clock. It's a very hip game. Anything can happen. The curvature of the ball, the curvature of the bat, the spin on the ball, it all makes for improvising. You have a given form, just like in music. Most of the time, 
there's definitely a diagram in different form. There's a certain amount of structure. But within that structure, there's a lot of unknowns because of the curvature of the ball and the bat. There's a lot of improvising going on in baseball because you don't know where that ball is going to go. You don't know what bounce it's going to take. A team works very much like a band. Whether they're fielding or doing double plays, all this stuff is very musical to me. The reaction to the fielder's spontaneity, depending on where the ball is being hit, their reaction to it is also processed when someone is playing music. Something pops up in the air and you react before you even think about it. When the batter sees the ball come out of the pitcher's hand, the batter automatically and instinctively knows if they're going to swing at the ball or not, based on the first third of that trajectory of the pitch. He doesn't know if that ball is going to sink, if that slider is going to go over to the right. You don't know. Johnny also um, takes, uh, for his students, he'll put a TV of a basketball game with the sound off and have those students improvise to the flow of the game. And I, I, I really would love you to talk about, is there any correlation for you between sports and music, rhythmically? Yes. Uh, Johnny is more of a baseball fan than I am. I don't know Johnny that well. Of course, I know he's drumming. I, I think we have some mutual friends from New Orleans. Um, love is playing. Uh, mine is the basketball thing. I can see that. With basketball, um, your visualization or your, um, yeah, I guess it's visualization, thinking about what can happen. In baseball, you've got a man on first or a man on second with one out. There's a lot of scenarios you can go through. If the ball's hit you in the air, if the ball's hit you on the ground. I was a little league all-star, and then I bailed and started playing <laughs> drums. I was okay. Yeah, no, I, I, I dig, I dig. For a, for a little kid. Left field, center field, right field. I could hit a little bit, you know. I probably would have made the high school team. Uh, love, uh, while we're on it, the technical side of it, I learned to switch hit at age 42. Get out of here. 42? That's insane. Yeah, man. I talked to Scott Spezio and Chili Davis about switch hit, oh. and I figured, well. Are Scott you kidding me, dude? Chili Davis is my – I cannot believe you just dropped Chili Davis's name, dude. That is the sickest guy. I love my, my favorite players of all time. And a nice guy. Uh, he we, told me he learned to yeah. switch hit at age like 21 or 22. So anyway, I yeah. went to the batting cage left-handed because I'm a drummer and sort of ambidextrous, started to switch hit and really discovered something about my body and playing left-handed or, you know, just the drums. I related it to it. But basketball <clears throat> is the one that, for me, you got five guys on the team. And in basketball, man, you're running a lot of times if you're on a running team and not a set-up offense. But even in half-court offense, once you start moving – and the ball comes to you, there's not a lot of time for visualization of, like, what am I going to do if the ball's hit to me? It's immediate. And so your reaction time, bang, the ball hits you on the baseline, boom, you drop it into the paint, guy takes it up, you follow that shot. It's all automatic. It's a feel thing. But following the shot, the feel of the basketball, you know, I'm an amateur, probably, once again, a high school player at best, maybe – you know, small college I could have gotten to if I busted it. Yeah, you were you, know, you were taking a broom in the paint, though, no doubt about it. I mean, you could rebound, block shots. I mean, you could do your thing. I could. I was okay. Like yeah. I said, high school. But playing it and being unemployed in Los Angeles, <laughs> uh, it was my my the it was my church at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I'd go over there and 
play basketball with all these unemployed actors and <laughs> <laughs> musicians. But I could relate to that. Even at Miami, when I was down there, I would play pickup basketball in the afternoon, and I would have dreams of playing drums, and it would segue into all of a sudden I'm full court. Really? It was so physical. Yeah, it would transcend. Like, Whoa. I was playing drums, and the physical feel of it, and all of a sudden I'm like running and catching and trying to dunk or something like that. So. Uh, when you said Johnny would turn off the sound and l have his students play, absolutely there is. Uh, I think for Hornsby too, you know, Bruce is a, a more of a mid-level Division One basketball player out wow. of high school. He was very Whoa. good, probably six three or six four point guard, and we definitely got something out of that for sure. The the other thing is the. Um the idea of of the the roundness of the rhythm uh, of the of the basketball being round as opposed to just again that vertical. Um, the other thing is that that when you talk about basketball, you know everything's happening in the moment. You don't have time to think. I mean, it's similar to 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 Phil uh, playing with Phil or people like Sco or people like that, where they're throwing stuff at you and you're throwing it back at them. There's no real time to think. You have to ad lib on the fly. And that's why I was saying that's the, yeah, yeah that's the basketball analogy the baseball one is good but for me with music it's so immediate like Schofield plays something and I'm gotta I gotta show John I'm listening exactly. or even Bentmont you know Bentmont's playing during John's solo I gotta acknowledge Bentmont too play with him a little bit incorporate everybody so that's I didn't even think of it in that way but it's the same basketball analogy everybody should touch the ball you're, I, you know, you just guy. you just popped it in, in my and there was nothing I hate more, even though I love LeBron James, than it's the equivalent to somebody just wanking it on the bandstand when it's just one on one and there's four guys on the other side of the court. You know, that's not music. Sure, man. You know, I, I dig it. Hey, James Harden, man, I saw him play in high school down at Artesia High. I think oh. he was a junior, no beard, young looking guy. <laughs> but it was the same thing even in high school. It looked like nobody was trying to cover him. And in the pros, they're trying to cover him, but nobody can cover him. But he's scoring 40 points. But, you know, it's sort of the James Harden thing. You know, it, it's going to come down to can the other guys perform? Can the other guys share? Because he can do it for sure. And uh, I know what you mean. I like the communal thing where everybody's, you know, oh. scoring 10 points and getting 10 reeves. That's a, that's a team for, that I'd like to be on. All right. Well, you're, 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 you're two for three. We got one more voice for you. And, uh, and then uh, we'll, we'll break it down. Okay, man. Well, it's I, I mean anybody that uh, that I listen to that I that I like the way they sounded, um, I uh, I would emulate them, you know. And it went from guys like Gene Cooper or Buddy Rich or Louis Belson. Um, you know, Elvin Jones, uh, Tony Williams, Jack DeJanet. Um, you know, I mean, I loved uh, I, I loved the way all of those guys, you know, played cymbals and, and uh, the sound of their drums. Max Roach, Art Blakey, they were all people that I was listening to. That my um, my 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 uncle who uh, bought albums for me to check out would, you know, uh, those were the things that he'd play for me. And uh, they were all playing a lot of cymbals, so that's what I grew up listening to. 
and I, I you know, I uh, those guys uh, were big inspirations. You want to take a guess? Man, you know, I feel really close to this individual, but mm-hmm. I don't know who it is. Well, you should feel re- close I because, you got, uh, yeah. Actually, I know do you. I know him? Uh, not only do you know him, uh, I believe you, um, it's possible that you, I'm going to have to look back at my records, but in some way, shape, or form, you and him were, I'm going to give it away now. It's Steve Gadd. Oh, okay. <laughs> he, he, yeah, man. Did, didn't you take I don't over know the Steve that well? But I think you know the story about how I heard him in high school. Exactly, the guy was that. like, "There's two drummers. They're really good. One guy has great feel. The other guy has even better feel." That was the story. That, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and the first guy played, and I went, "Man, he's great." And then Steve sat down. And I think I, I, I confided in you. It sounded like the kit was like micro mic'd up. The EQ, <laughs> the overall sound of the drum kit was just incredible. So that's Steve. Yeah, Steve's. He's a real cat, man. I well, mean, no, this is what I want to you know. Yeah, this, is the, this is the ultimate. We're going to wrap set one here. I mean, Molo has been exhausted from listening parties and, and rocking out in Alaska, and you've been, we've been cooking here for 70 minutes. But the, Joe Sample, rest in peace, When he to, what he talked to me about and what I was asking Steve about was essentially playing time on the top of the kit in a non-bebop setting. I mean, I know that there was this whole idea about dropping bombs, using the bass drum for accent, but, you know, what Joe, what Joe Sample said to me was that <clears throat> he doesn't see younger cats understanding how beautiful the colors of the symbols are. Reggie Workman, when I interviewed him, he said he'd go see a 45-minute set of great formulaic jazz, and the drummers won't touch the symbols the entire set. And I look at it and I say... I want Molo to talk about how to use the symbols, why the symbols are so important for mood, for vibe, for colors, and maybe even keeping time. Because to me, all I hear, when I go see a lot of mod music or God forbid EDM, uh, electronic music, I mean, it's pulverizing bass drums. That's all I hear. And I cannot stand it. And I just want, and I want, and I want people to know that the symbols are there for dynamics and I mean Sticks Hooper Joe Sample said it all I mean they that's what made some of that music and when he's talking about Max Roach and he's talking about Kenny Clark and all these guys they use the symbols to keep time too and I just I want as we wrap set one I want Molo to talk about effective symbol use and what it does especially for the spirituality of the music yeah symbols are really deep you know I mean they're (laughs) Some drummers have a love-hate relationship. Some engineers do. Cymbals can eat electric guitars. They can gobble them up. So you've got to respect the cymbals. But at the same time, if you go back and listen to, like, Manfred Eicher, I think the record company was ECM, mm-hmm. great drummers like Bobby Moses, that crystalline kind of flat ride sound that they got that really lent itself, like Jack DeJohnette with Keith. The, the use of the symbols and honoring the symbols is not just, oh, I'm going to go from a hi-hat to symbol here. It's a lot of responsibility that comes with it. Um, you know, uh, I have a collection of probably 30 to 40 symbols. It's not uncommon amongst drummers to have 
really extensive collections. Um, Max Roach is absolutely a beautiful cymbal player. I was in Washington, D.C. I was about 23 years old. My wife, Nancy, was about 22 years old. We walked into the jazz club. The guy, I didn't realize it at the time, they sat us right down in the front in front of Max's drums. I went, this is unbelievable. And then I thought, well, my wife is the only woman in here under the age of 25, and she looked gorgeous. So they put us right in front of Max, and I think Max played for my wife. Wow. And me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe more for my wife. He was just killing it, man. And I was just sitting there listening, and I thought, this guy is so musical. And I loved his work with Sonny Rollins. But, you know, what Steve was talking about, all these drummers that he listened to, you know, we know Steve from you know, 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover or the snare drum cadence he plays. But he is such a deep, great musician that plays drums. He's not just a drummer. I mean, he makes these songs come to life. Um, I think his observation of, of the use of symbols is incredibly important. And for young drummers to get into the tonality of it. And once again, I think what we touched on before, communal listening, man. Get in there with your drummer buddies or, or your, your uh, musician friends that play other instruments and talk to them about it. I mean, when you play jazz, a guy might turn around and say, man, I dig that. You're not going to get that that much in pop or rock where the singer turns around and goes, man, I dig your ride cymbal. You know, that that, just, that's what I was going to, you just read my mind because I was going to say is, are the cymbals an effective uh, vibrational tool in rock folk settings or is it only in jazz? Man. I don't know. I think it should cross over into both, for sure. Seems to me when you I know. listen to you and Phil, there's... I mean, do you use a lot of symbols? What does Phil feel about symbols? He's so deaf now, you can't hear him. <laughs> I can't believe I just said that, but... That's all right. We, know, we, can, we can edit that. We can edit that out. The other day we were playing... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I, you know, it, it, Phil and I have this communication that's, that's kind of unspoken, but, uh, yeah, he... he 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 can relate to it. He digs it, I think. But uh, yeah, the other day he asked me. We did "Lady with a Fan" and "The Terrapin," and he said, uh, you know, he really wanted me to play bebop. He wanted me to play the cymbals. He wanted. He didn't want like a boom with a backbeat, like a bebop sensibility. So he will comment on it every once in a while. He just doesn't on that one. He just didn't want the the drums to be draconian. Well, he and, hates. You know, I mean, he, he yeah, no. I mean, I think one reason you guys have that unspoken. I mean, he hates, he, he can't handle, he hates backbeat, you know, and, and there. Yeah, or cowbell, like a real hard cowbell dictating the time. He's not real big on that, so. Before I let uh, you go, anyway. before I let you go, Molo, um, is California kind? Do you have any gigs coming up? I, I really would love to come see that band. Yeah, man, come on out. We've got some stuff coming up this summer. Katie has been out with. Uh, Steve Parrish, yeah. No, I've been in Steve contact Parrish with. Steve doing the yeah. radio thing. Mm-hmm. And she's also got, I think, Dead and Company, the, the VIP tent before the gig so after that we're going out we've got a few gigs and uh, I'll, I'll i'll send you the information on those and of course we'd love to see you anytime and uh i'll i'll text you um but just don't do it over the air but text me back your email so i can send you some of these interviews you're really you know on your spare time when you're in the airports or traveling you're gonna yeah you're gonna love this shit man and, th- and thank that's you that's great man thank you so much jake yeah molo we'll do it again all right peace out brother peace bro talk to you soon okay man bye 
just another whistle stop. John Molo, Greenleaf Rustlers, California Kind, Moon Alice, David Nelson Band, Phil Lesh and Friends. That's it for now. We'll be back. This is the Jake Feinberg Show. Peace. Oh, I'm a